0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Not to us, O Lord, but to you be all the glory, all the honour, and all the praise. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray and speak to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. In what or in whom does your confidence lie? Is it your education, your wealth, your good looks, your upbringing, your health, your job, your family? What do you count as? your greatest gains in life. It's all too easy for us to put our confidence in the wrong things or the wrong people. Even the most cursory glance at the bookshelves of many bookstores reveal that the one person you really need to know, need to trust, and need to put your confidence in, according to these books, is you, yourself. After all, we're told, Who else will look after you if you don't? Because, of course, it's all about you. Now, when you put it so starkly, it just sounds silly. And yet, why are there so many self-help books? Why are we told so often to believe in ourselves? I wonder, could it be because so many people lack confidence? or feel that they are not up to the task. Although able to put on a brave face most of the time, many people are inwardly afraid, struggling with inadequacy or insecurity. I wonder, how many of you have ever thought if they only knew what I'm really like, they would never want me to be their friend? Or if they only knew what I was really like, They would never have hired me. Or whatever may be the particular locus of your insecurities. And by the way, there's a name for this. It's called imposter syndrome, which is uh, simply shorthand for describing this widely experienced psychological pattern in which an individual doubts their abilities and has a persistent fear of being found out or exposed as a fraud. Anybody tracking with me? Anybody felt like that? Yes, I don't want to be the only one to put my hand up. My goodness. But, but whether you feel like an imposter or not, how confident are you? How confident in ourselves should we be? In the verses leading up to our reading from Philippians today, St. Paul has been contrasting false confidence with true confidence. He writes, if anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He then cites some of his religious credentials, which are many, his impeccable pedigree, only to discount all of it at the point where we enter the text this morning in verse 7. You know, you would be hard-pressed to find someone more zealous and more sincere in their beliefs than St. Paul. But as he himself explains, that was not enough. And having listed so many of the reasons upon which Paul could be confident, he then says, verse 7, "'Whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss.'" because of Christ. And the simple but powerful point is this. If we put our trust, our hope, our confidence in ourselves, or in anything or anyone other than Jesus, then we will be sorely disappointed, and we will be let down. A variation on this theme is the notion that God helps those who help themselves. A notion which, according to a Barna research study, is embraced by 52% of practicing Christians who strongly believe that this is what the Bible teaches. After the first service this morning, someone came up to me and said they appreciated my sermon. I said, oh, what in particular? He said, well, I'll tell you. He said, two weeks ago, I put on my lock screen on my computer that phrase, God helps those who help themselves. And he was suitably convicted that maybe that's not the best thing to put on your lock screen. It's okay if the others have it too, it's fine, but let's talk about it. You know, though this is a view that is widely held, and, and honestly held by hardworking working decent, decent um, people who, who don't know the meaning of the word lazy, the problem with this idea of God helps those who help themselves is that it suggests that if we work really hard, then we'll get God's favor. And if we do our part, God will do his, and hopefully everything will work out to the good. But, you know, that is not even remotely what the Bible teaches Jesus did not say that the wages of sin is death and the wages of decent, hard-working, moral, and upright living is life. Thank God he didn't say that. No, he said that the wages of sin, that which we earn, that which we deserve, wages, right? The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God, that which we cannot earn, that which we do not deserve, The free gift of God is life. And in a culture that still seems by and large to have bought into the idea that you are what you achieve, the very idea of grace, the undeserved, unmerited love of God is still shocking. God's grace is all about getting what we don't deserve what we haven't worked for, but that which God freely gives. St. Paul had learned that all his great achievements, of which there were many, he was a very devoted Pharisee. We think Pharisee is a bad word, but there were Pharisees who gave their whole lives to learning the Torah and studying and living upright lives. But he'd come to see all of this as actually worthless when it came to his standing before God. He makes this clear in verse 9 when he speaks of being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. And you know, many people I find don't want to hear this today. They they don't want to be dependent upon someone else for their sense of worth. They want to have a, a righteousness of their own. They want to believe in themselves and in their own abilities and their own goodness. Now, of course, it is vital to have a right sense of our own worth, for we are made in the image of God, unique and loved by God. And it's essential to our health and well-being that we never forget that. And yet, the truth remains that we are also sinners in need of repentance and in need of God's forgiveness. We've got two more weeks of Lent left. And you know, Lent is this season of self-examination, honest self-examination, where we look into ourselves. We ask God to shine the light into our hearts. Jesus did not come to tell us to believe in ourselves. He did not come to raise our self-esteem. No, as the Bible clearly teaches, he came to call sinners to repentance and to seek and to save the lost. And that's us. That's us. Indeed, that was the wonderful picture also, if you were here last week, from the parable of the prodigal son. It wasn't until the son uh, that had gone away finally came to the end of himself that he was able to receive the wonderful love and grace and forgiveness of the father not because of what he'd done, but manifestly because of the grace of that father. And the other lost boy, the older one, the one who stayed at home, well, we're not told in the story what happened to him. Did he stay stuck in the selfish, miserable place he'd made for himself as he refused to come into the welcome home party? Or did he, like his younger brother, come to his senses? and receive the Father's love. It is only when we know Christ and receive the love and grace and forgiveness that he longs to give, that we can have true confidence. Confidence not in ourselves, but in the God who knows us and loves us. In the God who sent his son to die for us. Sadly, it's possible to know a lot about God, and yet still not truly know God. That was certainly how it had been for St. Paul before his conversion. And that's been the experience of countless churchgoers throughout the ages. They may have been baptized and confirmed. They, They may have been faithful church attenders. But their knowledge of God has never made that very long journey from the head all the way to their heart. Assent to Christian doctrine is not enough. For we need to experience the presence and power of God in our everyday lives. I mean, really, we do. Otherwise, what on earth are we doing? Listen again to what St. Paul says. Verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Amen? Amen. But look at what else he says. And the sharing of his sufferings now i don't believe that paul is suggesting that we should seek suffering but he does see it as inevitable i don't like suffering i like my comforts i like to feel secure and safe and loved etc cetera, etc cetera. who doesn't and yet and this is one of the mysteries i think of life i can tell you that the times in my life, when I've known suffering, whether through being let down or being profoundly hurt, it's, it's precisely in the midst of that suffering that I have known Jesus to be the most real in a way that I cannot fully explain. And verse 11 continues, if somehow, he says, I, w- I want to know Christ in his power and the sharing of his sufferings, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, This is not an expression of uncertainty but of humility. Paul never doubted that one day we would go to be with Christ. His future hope does not depend on his personal achievements or on himself at all for that matter but rather on what Christ has done for him and for us on the cross. And it is in the light of what Christ has done for him in in making him his own, that Paul resolves to press on to reach the goal. The goal of becoming more like Jesus. The goal of experiencing his power, even as he shares in his sufferings. The goal of following the call God himself has given him. Paul urges us to forget what lies behind And for some, that may mean putting behind us all of the bad things in our lives, those mistakes and sins that perhaps even still haunt us and weigh us down with guilt or shame. And by the way, St. Paul had plenty of those as well. He had been persecuting the church. But it may also mean putting behind us good things, because we can't live only on past experiences of God if we are to be growing daily in our following of Jesus. And Paul had much of that to put behind him. He'd lived a very good, moral, upright life before he started persecuting the Christians. You know, if, if I ask you how it is with your soul, if I ask you how you know Jesus, if you are only able to talk about something that happened 10 years ago, or five years ago, or even six months ago, and you can't say anything about this past week, then let's pay attention to that. Notice that. And remember, it's not what we know, but who we know. The one person we need to know above all others is Jesus. And of course, that's easy to say, knowing Jesus. It's kind of a churchy thing to say, right? But what does it mean? How can we know Jesus? Well, here's how I know Jesus. I know Jesus, the living word, through the written word, through the scriptures. I know Jesus through the love and compassion of others as they share the love of Christ with me. And like St. Paul and so many here this morning, I also know Jesus through suffering. I know that if I boast in my achievements, even if I don't boast about them out loud, I am far off from God. Whereas when I see myself as God sees me, even if in the midst of trials or sufferings or failures, even if in the midst of loneliness or despair, then I have known him powerfully. Now, is this always the case? Well, no. There are times when I felt nothing. There are times when I felt only absence. What do we do then? How then can we know Jesus? Well, very often I think it is through other people. But there's another way which I, along with countless others, have known, and that's through worship. Whether I feel like it or not, when I enter into this space, it doesn't have to be here, but when I let the liturgy do its work because I'm not in the mood or whatever, When I begin to look up from myself and consider his majesty, his power, his love, his compassion. As I let the words of ancient hymns or new songs speak in ways I cannot. Then I'm reminded. I'm reminded of the truth of the very real presence and power of the risen Christ. And then I hear again, sometimes only distantly, but absolutely, his voice encouraging me, comforting me, and spurring me on. And I pray that you would know that. And if you've no idea what I'm talking about, then come and talk to me afterwards, or talk to Father Jarvan or someone else who might know. And if we want to share Christ's Healing with a broken world, as we we declare in our vision statement for this church, that's one of the things we say. And if we want to do that, and I hope you do, then we need to know the healer and experience his healing in the midst of our own brokenness. We need to rediscover what it means to know Jesus in order that we may truly put all our hope and trust and confidence in him and in no one and nothing else. How well do you know Jesus? How might you offer yourself as you are with what you have to pour out your love for him, to worship him? You know, it doesn't matter whether you have lots of degrees or gifts or skills or money or or whether you have just yourself. You might think you have nothing to bring, no merits, no achievements, Indeed, maybe you feel you only have your failures, your disappointments, your brokenness. Well, bring that. Bring it all and lay it at his feet. The feet that were nailed to a cross so that you could be welcomed and forgiven and set free. Now, I have to say this. No one's going to compel you to do this. You can put yourself first. You can chase after whatever you want. You can chase your dreams. After all, this is America. But I promise you that ultimately, if indeed it's all about you, you will not be satisfied. You will not be filled. And you will not find lasting peace or joy or love. No, as St. Paul urges us, count it all as lost in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. Let us let us then not lose hope, but instead press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. So we forget what lies behind, we face the present, and we focus on the future. It is in the light of all that Christ has done for us, in making us his own, in dying for us, in forgiving us. And because he is with us day by day by his Holy Spirit, that we may look forward with confidence. This is what Paul does as he resolves to press on, press on to reach the goal. And that goal is the goal of becoming more like Christ of experiencing in his daily life the presence and the power of God, even as he endures sufferings. His goal is to follow wherever God calls him and leads him. And I think in this it's important that we grasp what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. The prize for which Paul is striving is not salvation. It's not heaven. He's already made it clear that the only righteousness that is worth anything is, verse 9, the righteousness that comes from God based on faith. It's not what he's doing, right? But having been declared righteous by God, having accepted the free gift of God's grace, his love and his forgiveness, Paul, in response, is then determined to make his goal, his purpose, for living, none other than pressing on in a life of love and service to his Lord. Knowing Jesus is the best, the most valuable, the most rewarding and satisfying thing in life, and that is St. Paul's goal. What's your goal? What is your heart's desire? What is your life built upon? Are you living in the past, or are you focusing on the future? Are you so busy keeping your head above water in the present that you've stopped straining forward to see what lies ahead, to see what God has in store for you? What is it that makes you get out of bed in the morning? What is the source of your hope and your joy? The challenge before us today surely is this you and I as individuals, and together as the body of Christ in this place, need to be sure of one thing. We are called to be single-minded and focused. We are called to set our priorities straight. We are called to understand afresh the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. So then, let us press on to run the race that is set before us, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Amen.